Project A Podcast. Hi, welcome to a new episode of the Project A Podcast. My name is Tamer and I'm CPO at Project A Ventures. At Project A, we not only invest into companies, but we give them access to our operational team in the fields of marketing, tech, product design, communication, data, and so on. And this approach gives us deep insights into the operations of these companies and learnings we want to share with you. In this episode, we'll talk about continuous product discovery habits, and I'm very excited to have Teresa Torres as a guest with us today. Teresa is an international author, speaker, and coach. She teaches over 7,000 product people with her Product Talk Academy, and companies like Spotify or Tasco among, uh, are among her clients. And she's the author of the book, Continuous Dis Product Discovery Habits. Um, I learned about Teresa Torres when I tried out Spark Toro, which is a great tool for research and audience intelligence. And I was looking for the biggest influences in the product management space. And it was not unexpected to see Marty Kagan, Martin Erickson, and Eric Rice. But in the hidden gem section, Teresa topped the list. So, hi, Teresa. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on board now today. So let me just like start with one question. What has gone wrong in your career that you become a product manager? <laughs> um, yeah, this is a great question. So like a lot of product managers, um, I didn't have any idea what product management was. I don't think I'd ever heard of a product manager um, early in my career. Uh, I was really fortunate in that I was introduced to human-centered design as a college student. Um, my first job out of college was as a um, kind of hybrid role, front-end software developer plus interaction designer. Um, that's because at that time, it was full-time interaction designers were kind of hard to come by. Um, so I had a split role. And then after a couple of companies of doing both of those roles, I ended up at an early-stage startup where it was clear that they just needed product management help. And I had um, a boss who was our VP of product who sort of introduced me to, hey, I think you're a product manager. Here's what that means. Um, and I recognized at that point that I actually had been doing a lot of product management work um, from day one. I just hadn't worked in companies that had product managers. Awesome. Um, in preparation to our session, I read that you are seeing your own coaching business as a product itself, trying to improve it the way that you teach people. Um, and what I found very interesting in this one is if you have any, some kind of like measurements for success for the product teams you actually coach? Yeah, so there's a lot of dimensions to this. So my personal goal is just to help as many teams as possible adopt a continuous cadence to their discovery practices. Um, what motivates me there is that I really think that it leads to better products. I look around the world and we have lots of mediocre products, lots of great products that have significant flaws. Um, and I really just think we could be doing a much better job. So I want to be a part of making that happen. Um, I measure a few different things. So in my coaching program in particular, so I work with product trios, a product manager, a designer, and an engineer. I work with them in the context of their work for 12 weeks. Um, and they get introduced to actually the exact same habits that are in the book, Continuous Discovery Habits. And they um, are, a, a, in the, over the course of the coaching program, they're applying them to their own work. And so I the way that program is structured is they get some instructional content that they do on their own. They do a team activity where they're applying the lesson to their own work, and then they come to coaching. And so some of the things that I measure are um, how quickly are they able to adopt the habits? 
um, the quality of the output of their activity. So for example, I work with a cohort of teams. So I'll be working with um, a set of teams that are all on the same schedule and I'll track the pace at which they move through the curriculum, which really represents the pace at which they're adopting the habits. And so then I can chart over cohort by cohort um, uh, the, the pace at which people are adopting the habit. So that's my primary metric for coaching. Um, but I also work with a number of people and actually far more people today through my Product Talk Academy. And that's where we have courses that individuals can sign up for. Um, and we teach them the exact same habits, but just in a little bit of a different format. And there I'm looking, it's a little bit harder to measure outcomes because they're applying it in their own work and I don't always have visibility into that. So for that, we're looking at, um, we measure a few things. We obviously measure just a, a satisfaction score with the products and services that they're engaging with. And then um, we have a community that all of their, our students participate in. Um, and I'm constantly looking for, is there evidence that they're actually putting this into practice? So we do a lot of things like, when was the last time you talked to a customer and just look for responses? Or what's your biggest barrier to adopting this specific habit? And then looking at, how, for the people that took our courses, is it helping them overcome those obstacles? So we have, um, my business, we have our own opportunity solution tree for all the sort of needs and pain points that we uncover with adopting the habits. And then we're constantly evaluating how do our products and services help people adopt, uh, address those needs. All right. That's that's super interesting. So I hear two things. Like on one thing is like how fast do they actually change their habits, which is I think a very great metric to see and to work on. Um, and you also say that you are measuring the quality of the output. So is it really that you are having a look at what they actually do and how the research is going to be done? Or, or how do you measure this one? How do you get to know that the output is, is good? Yeah, that's exactly what we're doing in our coaching sessions. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at the work that they did that week. So that could be the outcome that they chose, mapping the opportunity space, um, assumption tests that they're running, uh, interview snapshots that represent what they learned in an interview. And I'm just looking at, um, is there evidence that they're adopting the habits well? So like a really clear example of this is opportunity framing is a skill that really has to be developed. And when teams are new to it, solutions show up a lot in the opportunity space or they're not very specific. Um, and they're just not, they're not yet well-framed needs, pain points or desires. And so I can, I have sort of a quality measure of Really what I'm measuring is in what week of the program are they, do, are they showing proficiency with that skill? So it's really tied to that timeline. I think that's very, very, very good point. I mean, I also see that a lot of product managers are trying to apply the frameworks that they read about in the internet or what they learned about in books. Um, but uh, typically they don't challenge themselves as the output and see like, is, is this framing, is the wording correct? Did I really got it right? And as you mentioned, you know, like putting opportunities as solutions or the other way around is definitely like a uh, recurring problem that at least I see in the board of product management uh, quite a lot. Yeah, I think um, for a lot of us, it's really hard to apply what we learn and we're doing it in a con um, apply what we read. And it, with regard to a book, it's hard to know, are you getting it right? Because there's not a feedback loop. Um, and that's actually why um, we don't, we didn't just, I didn't just release a book. We also have a whole suite of courses to help you develop the habits. We launched a membership program where you can come and engage with like-minded peers and get lots of good examples 
of what it, what these habits look like in practice. And that whole ecosystem is really important to me. The book is just one piece of the puzzle because the goal with the book is to introduce people to a new way of working, but we know it's not going to be enough for people to actually change their behavior. And that's where coaching and courses and our membership program are, are designed to help fill that gap. Absolutely. So now, I mean, you mentioned this one that you've just like recently launched your book, Continuous Product Discovery Habits, which I can highly recommend, by the way. Um, I mean, this was definitely not the first book in the discovery space. What was your motivation to write this book and what kind of problem or let's better say opportunity are you trying to solve that? Yeah. So just to clarify, the title is Continuous Discovery Habits. There's no product in there um, just for folks that are trying to find it. I'm very um, <laughs> that's okay. And then, um, yeah, so the, I designed this book to, to solve a very specific need, which is um, I meet plenty of product teams that are really excited about discovery, that maybe they're already starting to adopt some discovery activities, but they don't always know what to do when, or they don't know how to get started. And so this book is really designed to be a product trio's guide to a structured and sustainable approach to continuous discovery. And the reason why I emphasize structured and sustainable is because it is discovery is messy, right? We don't know what we're going to learn. We're wandering. There's lots of twists and turns. And it is really hard to know what to do when. So the structure is what helps us make those decisions. And then it's also really important that it be sustainable, that it's a process that we could literally could do 50 weeks of the year um, because we're starting to see some discovery activities um, arise and become popular that are not sustainable. It's not that they're not good activities, right? Like a design sprint is a great example of this. A design sprint is a phenomenal activity to get stakeholders aligned, um, to do sort of project research um, on a big meaty problem and to really just spend a week tackling it. But you can't get all the important players to devote full time for a full week all the time, right? That's very much an occasional discovery activity. So one of my goals was, how do we create a process that you really could run every single week of the year and just becomes the new way that we work? All right. That sounds like a very common problem. Like many product management people, or you call it like product trios, um, at least I know have this like mindset and willingness to actually do this continuous research but they're having real problems to get it off the ground to not doing this kind of one-off research thing, like as you mentioned in, in a Google design sprint or whatever, but, but making this one part of the day-to-day -day job. So, so what are, what are the major forces that you see in the coaching that prevents the teams from, from actually getting started and getting this one to a continuous habit? Yeah, so let's start with, um, let me define product trio. So a product trio is a product manager, a designer, and an engineer working together to make decisions about what to build. So there you're driving your discovery process. Um, when I work with a new team, almost always the first few weeks is we're removing obstacles to working this way. So there's a few common things I see. Some of them are on the mindset side, right? Like the trio is waiting for permission. They're waiting for somebody to say to them, yes, you're allowed to talk to a customer or um, they just don't know where to get started. And it, the reason why the, the book title has habits in the title is that I actually think that that is a critical component of this, is that our goal is to develop habits that are sustainable over time. Um, and so the first habit that I work with on Teams is just start talking to your customers every week. There's some barriers to that. Some companies 
people feel like they're not allowed to talk to customers. And so we have to work through that obstacle. Is that true? Have they explicitly been told they're not allowed to talk to customers? Or is that just their perception? How do they start to break through that? Um, in the book, I talk about automating your recruiting process. So how do you make it so that an interview shows up on your schedule every week? Um, that's a really important element of making this sustainable. You can't hustle to find a customer to talk to every week. You'll just burn out and stop doing it. Um, so it really is about how do you take this habit mindset? And just like if you were trying to change your diet or trying to work out more often, it's the same idea. You can't just suddenly tomorrow radically change your diet or start working out seven days a week. You're going to injure yourself. You're not going to stick with it. The same is true when we talk about discovery habits. You have to find a small place to start and then iterate from there. So what I advise teams to think about is, if, especially if you read the book, don't feel overwhelmed by all the things that you could be doing. Start with a teeny tiny thing that you can do next week. And then every week, try to make the next week a little bit better than the previous week. So we're taking a continuous improvement mindset to our own process. One of the, let's say, obstacles when I talk to product managers is that they say, yeah, I would love to do it, but I don't have time for it. Mm -hmm. Is that also something that you hear? And what do you advise people if they are coming across this type of like argument? Yeah, so to get started with the continuous process, I think you could do it in as little as 20 minutes a week. Find one customer to talk to you for 20 minutes each week, and you've already kicked off your continuous discovery habit. Um, now, I have seen some product people where their calendar is double booked and triple booked, and they're in meetings 10 hours a day, um, and they, they will argue they don't have 20 minutes to do this. Um, here's the thing. A lot of product people get invited to a lot of meetings, and it feeds our ego. Right? Like we like that our expertise is wanted. We like that we get included in things. It makes us feel important. But the reality is, you don't need to be in all of those meetings. Right? So if you're spending an hour every week with your engineering team while they triage bugs, you probably don't need to be there. You probably need to know what are the one or two bugs that are critical for you that they address. Share that over email and move on. Right? So if you really feel like time is the hurdle, the first thing I would do is print out a week of your calendar take a red pen and literally be ruthless about what meetings you're going to stop going to. Um, and you really can start the habits in this book in as little as 20 minutes a week. I totally agree to that one. And the interesting part here, at least I found, is that the first you talk to customers, it's getting somehow infectious. So typically people that are getting out of this first discussion with a customer are so let's say, even enlightened with, with what they learned about it and, and how their perception of the world just like changed because they have talked to some very specific customer, that this um, is, is leading them also, hopefully then even more to, 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 to some more research and to more talking to customers. Um, now, let's talk a little bit more about the habit creation part. Um, I mean... We talked already about it, that the research needs to become, let's say, a natural part of the day-to-day -day job, right? And you mentioned that you definitely need to have the permission, which is probably a big topic, but I think the results can speak for themselves afterwards if you've researched most of the content um, and getting this one started. So can you share some tips with us on how to actually strengthen this kind of habits? If you just like started with this 20 minutes, you do quite great progress. What do you do next? How do you how do you foster this kind of like habit creation so you're not getting into old habits once there is a 
deadline coming up or something like that. Yeah, so there's this really great concept that comes from Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit. He introduces this idea of a keystone habit. So he calls it a keystone habit because it's a single habit that unlocks other habits. So a good example of this is in the health and well-being space. People that start to exercise tend to do adopt other health and well-being habits. So for example, you start going to the gym more, it motivates you to eat better. Um, it motivates you to sleep more. It, it, you have more energy, so you're more productive at work. So this idea of a keystone habit is really simple. It's just how do you find a habit that makes it easier to adopt other habits? I believe with discovery, the keystone habit is just talking to a customer once a week. And the reason for that is that product teams have fall prey to this bias called the curse of knowledge. So we work and think about our product all day long. We know our products inside and out. We know how they work. We know the underlying data model. We know all the business logic. So we're experts on our product. The problem with that is our customers are not experts on our product. Even our power users, they don't know the product as well as you as a product person do. And so because you fall prey to the curse of knowledge, it's impossible to know, to think about your product the way that your customer will. And so when we start engaging with customers every week, every customer touch point is an opportunity to see how your customer thinks about your product differently than you do. And when you start to get exposed to that gap, it encourages you to say, oh, okay, well, my customers may not understand this. Maybe I should test it. Or, hey, I'm making this assumption about my customer that might not be true. Maybe I should go run an assumption test. Or um, this seems easy to me, but in my last customer conversation, I realized it might be more complex. Maybe we should usability test this. So just by being exposed to customers on a regular basis, it's going to make you much more aware of the gap between how you think about your product and how your customers think about your product. And that's going to inspire you to start to adopt the other habits. And so I, I, don't, it's, I don't think you have to complicate this. You really can just get started by thinking about how do I make it as easy as possible to talk to at least one customer every single week. And again, if you've never talked to a customer, just start by talking to one customer. And if you talk to your customers monthly, try to get to every other week. And if you're doing it every other week, try to get to weekly. Your goal is to create those moments where you can start to become aware of that gap. I have a couple of questions now. Um, and maybe I'm going to start with, uh, with this one, first of all. I mean, like we were talking about talking directly to customers. And as we know, product discovery is a way broader field. There's qualitative data, there's quantitative data, different type of approaches, first level, second level. How important in your point of view is the fact that you definitely need to talk to a direct end customer? Or is it just like part of the game and it's totally fine to also just like jump into the numbers, or Google Analytics or whatever you're going to use as a tool to try to get some kind of data out of this? So analytics are import an important part of the picture, but they're not a replacement for interviews. The numbers are never going to tell you why somebody did something. It's not going to help you see the gap between your mental model of how your product works and your customer's mental model. It, it is a part of the puzzle, right? So you might, if you see a problem with one of your analytics, it's going to inspire you to go dig in and say, what's going on here? And you can explore that in your interview, but it's not going to tell you how your customer thinks, what their context is, um, how they differ in how they're thinking about the product from how you do. So we have lots of sources of inspiration, whether that's 
behavioral analytics, support tickets, input we're getting from sales teams. All of these are great inputs into the process, but they do not replace firsthand experience and exposure to your customer directly. Um, yeah, I think so too. I mean, this is like, um, it, it's a totally different kind of game once you talk to a customer than just like reading their comments. And I can also like highly recommend to actually go that path and that way. Um, but I also have another question. I mean, like um, for, for many people, you, you mentioned the structure and this kind of getting started. Um, is there any specific questions that you can say, this is like the first research part that you can take as a model to, let's say, start the first discussion? Because I know many, many product people are like, oh, God, I would love to do research and yes, I get it. And, but, but what do I ask them? Right. So, so what do I ask our first customers? Like, it's just like really about solutions or problems or usability testing. Is there something where you can say, you know what, if you don't have experience, you want to get started, this could be the first kind of thing. Yeah. So I cover a deep dive on this in the book, but I'll give you the highlights. So first of all, The goal of an interview is to discover opportunities. So opportunities are customer needs, pain points, and desires. Oftentimes we think about an interview as a way to get feedback on our solutions. That is not the best way to get feedback on your solutions. You want to assumption test to evaluate solutions. Interviewing is all about getting to know your customer, understanding their context, and, and, and listening for those opportunities. So needs, pain points, and desires. You can't just Go talk to, I mean, first of all, if you've never talked to a customer, I don't want you to overthink it. No matter what you ask them, you're going to learn something valuable. But the more you talk to customers, I want you to think about how do I ask the right questions to get reliable feedback? And there's a chapter, chapter five in the book is all about interviewing and what to ask in your interviews. And the key here is we need to keep people grounded in specific stories about their past behavior. So for example, if I'm interviewing you about net, your Netflix behavior, I don't want to ask you direct questions like, what do you watch on Netflix? Um, how do you decide what to watch? Who do you watch with? Where do you watch? What device do you watch on? The problem with those questions is that your brain is going to come up with really fast answers, but those answers aren't necessarily going to reflect reality. And this isn't because you're trying to lie to me or you're trying to be deceptive. It's just because of the way that our brains conjure up answers and because of all the cognitive biases that we suffer from as, as human beings, right? So your job as the interviewer is to ask questions in a way that will lead to reliable answers. And what I mean by that is that their answers will reflect their actual behavior. And the key to doing this is to ask about specific instances. So instead of asking you, how do you choose what to watch? What do you like to watch? Where do you like to watch? I can just ask you, tell me about the last time you watched Netflix. And then I want to collect the story. And then I can get answers to my questions in the context of that specific story. So I can listen for what did you watch? Where were you? What device did you watch on? Who were you with? How did you pick the show that you watched? But because we're discussing it in a specific context, it makes it a lot easier to, the answers will be much more reliable. Now, the book covers this in depth. It'll give you questions and teach you how to come up with that story-based question. But I will share, it does take practice. If I just asked you, hey, tell me about the last time you watched Netflix, You're going to give me a one, one sentence answer. It's going to be like, oh, well, I watched uh, Game of Thrones last week with my spouse, right? That's not a very good story. So the work of the interviewer is to excavate the story. Um, this does take practice. We do have a course called Continuous Interviewing that teaches people how to do this. 
you get four hours of hands-on practice actually interviewing so that by the time that you get into a conversation with a customer, you've already developed the skill and you know exactly what to do and you can collect reliable feedback. Is there any more tips on how you can actually practice that one? I mean, something where you can get started beyond like, of course, taking one of your courses. Um, any things where, what you can say like, okay, you know what, before you actually go there, try this out. Is there something that you've um, come across that, that worked quite well as a, as a Kickstarter? Yeah. So <laughs> first of all, I do recommend getting the book because it is designed to give you really actionable advice. You can practice on your own, right? So you can pull a colleague or a friend or even your significant other and just practice collecting a story. So it doesn't even have to be about your product, right? You can, if somebody, if you're come home from work and you're significant and you're asking your significant other about their day, you can ask them to walk you through their day and practice collecting the story. So there's actually lots of opportunities to practice. Um, where I think a course can be really helpful is to get feedback on your practice, right? Exactly. And I can also recommend to just like look out for another product manager who might be a little bit more senior or has some specific experience. He's probably also very much willing to help you out with that one and just like interviewing them and getting direct feedback, because I think this is also a very good, good approach in order to, to make sure that you're not doing the wrong question mistakes. Even if you know about them, if you read about them, if you understood them, applying this one in the actual situation is definitely a different game. <laughs> All right, so um, let's now continue with um, let's now continue with where you're gonna bring this one next. I mean, now we started to um, define the specific outcomes and getting all the opportunities into place and trying to get some very dedicated answers to this one. I would love to know more about how to balance this one out with the, let's say, not only from the customer side, but from the business side, from the strategy of the company. How do you make sure that you're going to research the right things? How do you make sure that the outcomes um, that you uncover are going to be, you know, like evaluated based on the, based on the business requirements? How, how do you go about this one? How yes. do you bring the two words together? So the strategic context of the company is going to come to play into play in a couple of different ways. So first of all, it should influence your outcome. So the outcome at the top of your opportunity solution tree represents the value you're going to create for your business, right? So the business is saying, product trio, this is the value we need you to create. Now, oftentimes companies communicate that value in, in terms of a business outcome. So it's things like, grow revenue, reduce churn, increase market share, be the number one player in this space. Those are all business outcomes. So the product team has to do the work to translate that business outcome to a product outcome. So what do I mean by that? A product outcome is a metric that's measuring behavior in the product. That's where the product team can influence. So if the company says we need you to reduce churn, the product team needs to find a behavior in the product that's a leading indicator um, that prevents churn. So it's a leading indicator of retention. And then they want to focus on driving that product outcome. So the first place that the strategic context and the company strategy shows up in this process is in the setting of the outcome. The second place it shows up is that as you interview, you're collecting opportunities. So you're, you're mapping out the opportunity space, trying to understand customer needs, pain points, and desires. The challenge here is the opportunity space is infinite. So we're not 
considering every opportunity we encounter. We're only going to consider the opportunities that have the potential to drive our outcome. So again, if we use this churn or retention example, if my outcome is, is reduced, if the business is asking me to reduce churn, and I've mapped that to a product outcome, a behavior that I can measure in the product, I'm only looking at opportunities that have the potential to increase that product behavior, not all opportunities. So that means you'll hear about needs that you're not going to address. Um, so then you're going to map out the opportunity space using your outcome as a filter. And then finally, you're going to assess and prioritize the opportunity space. And that's where your company strategy and that strategic context is going to come back, right? One of the factors that you're going to consider is different opportunities will have a different impact on your company mission, vision, strategic objectives. Um, you'll have different company strengths or weaknesses that might impact what opportunities you go after. So all of that context will also come into play when choosing which opportunities to pursue. Exactly. That sounds, this sounds great. I mean, like in my pre experience, it's both the combination of a strategy with real research that more or less typically makes your prioritization, right? So if someone comes to me with a prioritization problem, this is probably my go-to answer. Like, did you do research or do you have a good strategy, right? And then after that, you typically don't have any big questions anymore. And typically the best ideas crystallize out of the data that you're going to gather at this point. Um, Teresa, thank you. Thank you very much. Just like one last question from my side. I mean, the product management field has evolved quite significantly, I would say, in the last let's say, five to 10 years, right? I mean, like uh, 10 years ago, we still needed to argue that we definitely need to do research and it's important. Now, at least from my experience, the amount of like pushbacks on these topics has gone, gone lower and even other people are just like asking for that one. Like, oh, what kind of data do you back your decisions on, right? Um, and this is now developing uh, quite nice. So, What is actually the one big message that you want to bring to all product managers if you could do so? Like, is there something that you would advise them one big message where you say, like, hey, right, take this one as an advice and then probably we're going to build better products and not worse products? Yeah, so let's um, break this apart a little bit. So I would argue that we have made some progress, but I think the key to remember, like William Gibson has an amazing quote that I think applies here, which is, The future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. So in some ways, we've moved really quickly. In other ways, we haven't. So the example that I'm going to give is that the Agile Manifesto came out 20 years ago. We're still seeing companies struggle to adopt an Agile mindset. Sure, we're adopting the ceremonies and we're running sprints and we're doing scrum, but not in an Agile way, right? Marty Kagan calls it mini waterfall, and that really is a great term for it because that's fundamentally what it is. We're still thinking in projects. So in some ways, um, change is happening really slowly. But I do agree with you. We are seeing more teams talking to customers, adopting practices like A-B testing, um, usability testing. We have amazing tools, right? Like we now have unmoderated testing tools. We have quick one-question survey tools. Um, we have a lot of great tools to help us do discovery well. Um, but it's still really unevenly distributed. I would argue that the vast majority of product people are still working in an old waterfall world, even if they run sprints and they're still working from a project mindset. They still have very little exposure to customers. And so what I would leave people with is 
no matter where you or your company is on this journey, you will individually benefit from developing your outcome mindset, your continuous mindset, a customer-centric mindset. Even if you are being asked to deliver a fixed roadmap of features, you will do a better job of developing those features if you understand the business value you're creating and if you understand the customer value that you're creating. So you will still individually benefit from learning how to work this way. That's a very great, uh, that's a very great message. And I can just like really uh, emphasize on this one. The moment you start to gather these information and build this kind of sponge of knowledge, um, my experience is that the way it's going to be asked, it's going to be turned turn around. Like, first of all, people might be against it. If you get all this data, people will then try to get to you in order to ask for specific questions that they might not going to be answered. And this is probably creating a very positive spiral loop. So in the end, we're going to build better products. All right, Teresa, thank you very much for the great insights. I hope we can all have given you some insights on how to get started with discovery, how to get it into a habit loop, how to balance this one out with the strategical mindset. And of course, this is only a minor part of what is covered in the book. So I can, as I said, highly recommend buy the book and read it. And if you have more questions, feel free to reach out. I think we are very easy to find um, on Twitter, LinkedIn, or other platforms. And thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. If you did, how about you subscribe on Spotify and or iTunes and give us a rating. Thanks, guys.